Well, few things tend to capture our attention so thoroughly as a good old-fashioned scandal. Everyone enjoys finding out about scandals. Everyone. Even if they say they don't, they do. Which is why tabloids and gossip websites and, and nightly soap operas continue to remain popular in our country. Because scandals sell. It captures people's attention. But while everybody likes to hear, see, read, or talk about a scandal, nobody wants to be part of one. Nobody wants to be judged or rejected, gossiped or, or slandered about. Nobody wants to, be, uh, to lose their privacy or respect or a chance to earn their living. Scandals are only juicy when they affect someone else. But herein lies an incredible irony for us as Christians. Because the whole story of the Bible, the whole goodness of the good news, is that while human beings were spiritually dead and under the curse of sin, and no one would want to touch us with a ten-foot pole, that's when the Son of God left eternal glory so to put on human flesh with and for us. The unchangeable God outside of time and matter became a human man in our human history. It's easy for us to take for granted how scandalous this truth of the Gospel actually is. How scandalous it is to most of the world, world's religions. Recently I was reading a, um, a religious but non-Christian person who was mocking this scandalous belief that God, who they also believe to be eternal and holy and all-powerful and perfect, but who was mocking the idea that Christians really believe that God became a human baby. That he had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. That his mother had to feed him. That his, father had to, his human father had to potty train him. That he had to grow up and learn and become human like all of us. Because it's scandalous to religious people all over the world that an eternal, mighty God would lower Himself to the depths of our undignified human existence. See, we know what we look like in the morning. We know what we feel like throughout the day. We know all the, 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 the things about our bodies and our lives and our aches and pains that humiliate and disgust us. And Jesus came and took all of that on Himself to become a human man. It's even more unthinkable that that God that became human would suffer the indignity and shame and scandal and humiliation of dying naked and abandoned on a cross. Not for good people, but for sinners. And yet that is exactly how God has always chosen to love and save us throughout the Bible. Through undignified and surprising scandal. It's the way that God has always worked. And we've just read here about another scandal that paves the way for the scandal that is Christmas time. See, Ruth is doing whatever she can to save her mother-in-law's life, even when it misks, even when it means risking her own of, of, of humbling herself and being a servant at all cost. 
Now last week, Ruth returned to Naomi after finding unbelievable favor from Boaz. And so she comes back from the the barley fields with an abundance of grain, and it shocks Naomi, who is just certain that God hates her. She goes from, from, from complaining to God now to praising His name. But then Naomi hatches a scheme for Ruth to go into the dead of night and to try to secretly win Boaz's favor. And this is where our story picks up this morning. Now let's look, beginning in chapter 3. Now some time has passed between our uh, last meeting and, and now today's text. Ruth and Naomi are continuing to live well under Boaz's kindness. But Naomi picks up this hope again that she expresses here, that perhaps Ruth could end up with Boaz, not just as a boss, but as a husband. And not just as a, as a noble person in the town, as a neighbor, but as the, the father of her children. He certainly boasts the character. He has the resources, the qualifications to be everything that Ruth could ever hope for in this life. So Naomi approaches Ruth one day and tells her that she wants to be able to find rest for Ruth, to truly find rest by being taken care of, we read here. What does that mean? What is Naomi referring to? It means that that Ruth would have a family, that she would have children, that she would have a shot at a future. So in order for that to happen, Naomi concocts a plan. And here's the plan. After Boaz has been hard at work all day, and he's worn himself out, winnowing the barley, just getting big hails of straw and tossing in the air, and separating that and just working himself um, to a fairly well. And then at the end of the day, when it gets dark and, and he puts the pitchfork in the, the haystack and, and, and goes and eats a good meal and has a few glasses of wine, perhaps, and falls asleep, then Ruth should go to him under the cover of night, secretly, and lay down at his feet. Now, what is this all about? What does this mean to go down and, and lay at his feet? Well, many commentators have had many guesses as to what exactly is happening here. And they all disagree with each other, of course. But the one thing that they all agree on is that this is a sign of humility. That Ruth is going to do whatever she can. She is willing to stoop to the lowest of lows to show herself to be a servant, not only for Boaz in the moment, but ultimately motivated by the the love and life of her mother-in-law. But I think Naomi is also hedging her bets a little bit here. She's not only hoping that Boaz would be continuing his kindness, but she just wants to make sure that she can secure the deal. Because in verse 3, she recommends that Ruth wash and put on her fanciest outfit and her, and her nicest perfume. Essentially, she's telling Ruth to make herself more attractive, maybe even a little bit more seductive to remove any sign that she's a grieving widow, and to show herself as an eligible bachelorette willing to do whatever Boaz wants. And Ruth agrees to this, willing to humble herself to no end, to gain his favor and attention. Now in some ways, in our our, our spiritual lives, we find ourselves like Ruth. Poor and unable to take care of ourselves, hoping that somebody outside of us, externally, would show us some favor or kindness. 
But we also, I think, are kind of like Naomi in a sense because we scheme at how we can grovel at some lower deity's feet to gain their favor. That's why people all over the world have these things in common. When they feel uh, hopeless and, and needy, they'll, they'll come up with uh, schemes and, and plans to pray to various gods, make various sacrifices, humble themselves before some powerful person that they might show them pity or favor, might help them out with a relationship, might give them a little money that they need, might advance them in their career a little bit. And as Christians, not only as human beings, but as Christians, it's tempting for us to believe that we too have to allure our Lord's favor by, by presenting ourselves washed, by putting on our nicest outfit on Sunday morning, by perfuming ourselves, so to speak, by presenting our, our most together self, presenting our best and religious self to the Lord so that we might impress Him and secure His favor. I think we're tempted to believe that God only loves us when we behave the best and we're most, the most spiritually presentable. But isn't it amazing that before we, like Ruth, ever bow to the, the foot of our Savior, we find the Lord Jesus has already stooped low to our feet. See, it's amazing that in the Gospels, the, the first person to bow to the foot of, of, of another is not the disciples bowing to Jesus. It's Jesus bowing down to the disciples and washing their feet. Showing His own Humility, even as God, to love and serve and suffer and die and rise for such a, um, such a capricious bunch as this. See, the Bible tells us that we are born into this world as enemies and strangers to God. But Jesus was born for us at Christmas time in a cattle stall surrounded by a bunch of common laborers and animals to be a servant to the same enemies and strangers. So that one day through faith in Him, we may be exalted in the Father's presence. No longer as strangers and enemies, but forever as co-heirs and co-rulers even with Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we are called to lay at His feet We are called to to worship with the shepherds at the foot of the manger. We're called with the sinful woman to lay at his feet at at the foot of his table and the pagan centurion even at the foot of his cross. But we find before we even have a chance to come to his feet, he's already come, stooped low, and washed our feet. In verses 6 and 7, Ruth continues her faithfulness her mother-in-law, even when Naomi's schemes were quite obviously scandalous. And after Boaz has worked hard all day, he's eaten a warm meal and maybe had a few glasses of wine, his heart was merry. He was in good spirits. We know what that means. And he's falling soundly asleep on the threshing floor. And now this is how Ruth is told to go and meet him. Wait till he's half asleep, He's out on the threshing floor. It's nighttime where no one can see you. And when he's a little bit less than sober, 
And she's wearing her finest outfit, her nicest perfume, and was to come lay down at his feet, not only showing her boldness, but her willingness to do whatever he asks, Naomi said. Whatever he wants you to do, do it. Now, Scripture is sparse in details here. We don't get an inside view of what's going on in anyone's head, and the author doesn't comment on anybody's motivations. But common sense dictates to us that this is not the wisest situation that Ruth, or that Naomi has sent Ruth into. In fact, Naomi is setting Ruth up and Boaz up to be scandalized, which Boaz realizes when he finally sees Ruth is there. Once Boaz was asleep, Ruth sneaks up close to him and uncovers his feet and lay down next to him. And I don't have to tell you what people would think about that if they were to catch a glimpse of it. Even for a moment, if they were to see this strange woman coming to lay down with Boaz in the night. You know how town gossips will get about that. Which is why in verse 8, when Boaz is startled awake at midnight, we read, perhaps because Ruth has uncovered his feet and exposed him to cold air, and he, he turns over, and behold, there at his foot is lying a woman that he doesn't recognize. It's, I can almost see this playing out like a slapstick comedy at this point. And Boaz jumps out of his skin. He's fearful, maybe even a little angry. And he demands to know, who are you? What are you doing here? But she answers ever so meekly, I'm Ruth, your servant. Please, take me under your wing. In other words, be my family Redeemer. What a powerful and humble request this is from this woman from a foreign land. See, Ruth uses a metaphor that Boaz used in the last chapter to spread his wings over her. Boaz used it referencing God, uh, uh, saying that God, and uh, inviting um, her to be under God's protection. But now Ruth is using it to ask Boaz to spread his cloak over her as an ancient Israelite custom, a way of showing betrothal or engagement. So she's using his own words back at him. And in other words, Ruth is asking Boaz to consider marrying her. Now that's pretty bold for a foreign woman that's got no status in the community to come to a noble man like Boaz. It's respected by everybody. And say, would you marry me, a poor pagan widow from Moab. Again, we're probably too far removed from this cultural context, but this is scandalous. And Boaz marvels at it. And in verse 10, instead of chasing her away or taking advantage of her, which I think Naomi was planning could probably happen, he speaks a blessing over her. He asked the Lord to bless her, using a term of endearment that an older man might say to a young woman he's close to. He says, my daughter, which is to like say darling or, or, or sweetheart, not in a condescending way, but in a way of showing great compassion and delight in another human person. And again, that's a scandalous thing for a nobleman of Bethlehem to say to this foreigner, Sweetheart, darling. 
Boaz then talks about this new kindness that Ruth shows. The first kindness that she showed was when she was good to her mother-in-law, which is why he was, in chapter 2, so kind to her, because he appreciated how good she was to her mother-in-law, one of his own kin. And that Ruth didn't abandon Naomi when she could have easily done that. But this second kindness is now not towards Naomi, but towards him, Boaz, who is an older man. And we don't know how much older he is. I think we could probably imagine he's a little gray around the temples, probably a little slower than he used to be, probably a little out of shape. He's, he's not, he doesn't look like a young man. See, he's amazed that Ruth is not even interested, not just in a, in a younger rich man, but even a younger poor man. Well, what All young women would be interest, more interested in a young, handsome, Harry Styles-looking guy. I don't know if that's applicable. But instead, she comes to him, an older man. What humility on her part. He recognizes. And so Boaz tells her not to be afraid because he'll do everything she asks. See, Ruth was willing to do everything Naomi asked and going to Boaz thinking that Ruth would do everything that Boaz would ask, but Boaz is a man of such noble character. He says, no, 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 no. You don't have to do anything I'll ask. I'll do whatever you ask of me. Talk about humility on his part. Boaz describes Ruth as the way he's described in in chapter 2 of this book. In chapter 2, we see that Boaz is called a worthy man, and now he refers to Ruth as a worthy woman. Now, she didn't have power or status or money. She wasn't worthy in the eyes of the community, but in the eyes of the Lord, and in Boaz's eyes, She was worthy. She belonged. She ought to be a part of the people of Bethlehem. Now just think about how far we've come in this story. We first met her as a Moabite woman who was hungry, widowed, childless, and following a despairing and bitter mother-in-law into a lawless land and guaranteed no chance of survival. That's how the story begins. Ruth had no hope. She had no peace. And now she's become, becoming the beloved of a worthy and compassionate and noble man, getting all the food she would ever need, getting all the love she could ever imagine, being overshadowed and drawn in not only by Boaz, but by the Lord of Israel. A foreign woman that didn't belong, the Lord wants her to belong to His people. What joy Ruth must be experiencing and what was her dark night of the soul when it seemed like she had no future, what a joy now to see that the future is opening up to her. But oh no, folks. There's a catch. Because Boaz, although he has a right to redeem her from her hopeless situation, he discloses to her, there's actually somebody that's closer in the line. Somebody that has more qualification in terms, legally speaking, 
of redeeming you. A family redeemer that is nearer in the line than he is. Now next week, as we conclude our our series in Ruth, we'll meet this nearer redeemer. And we'll see how that story concludes. But for now, I want us to consider this. For Ruth and for us, there is a nearer redeemer than Boaz, and there is a nearer redeemer than this unnamed man. And for us, there is a nearer redeemer, but strangely in this story, he hasn't been born yet. But one day, through Boaz and Ruth's family tree will come, not King David, simply, but King Jesus, our family redeemer, who comes and puts on the indignity of human flesh to be one of us to redeem the indignity of our human flesh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Jesus came into this joyless world to redeem all who turn to Him from sin and death. Jesus came into this joyless world to find a bride. Not just one person, but an entire people, the church. Folks, the story of Ruth points us to an even greater story in the life of Jesus. See, Jesus was born at Christmas. He died on Good Friday. He was raised on Easter. He ascended after Pentecost. And to make all those who would look to Him in faith His bride, to be their family redeemer, and for us to become His foreign but noble bride. Think about it. The sinless Christ becoming sin on the cross for us so that we, a sinful church, might become the righteousness of God forever. This is the most scandalous thing God could ever do for people like us. And He did it while we weren't like Naomi, or we weren't like Ruth, rather, of noble character. He did it while we were the sorriest characters in the story. And yet, he didn't count the the cost of scandal as too great to bear. This is why even though Boaz is a worthy man, Jesus is a God-man who is worthy, worthy, worthy of all of our worship. See, Boaz here cares about Ruth's well-being. As we return to the story, he tells her in verse 13 to, to stay in his protection for the night. In the morning, he'll, he'll go and settle the matter for her with this beautiful promise, if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. He cares about the well-being of Ruth. But Boaz also cares about Ruth's reputation. He wants her to continue to be perceived as a noble woman. So he tells her in verse 14 to go quietly in the dark of morning before sunrise so that no one suspects any foul play, and any improper relationship. Then in response to her request to spread his cloak over her, he asked in return that she might open her shawl before him so he can fill it up with grain, scoop of grain after grain, again loading her down with all that she can carry back to her home. He protects and provides for her to the last. Naomi and Ruth are utterly ecstatic. 
about this, as you might imagine. Boaz has not only provided for and protected her at every turn, but now he is going to seek to redeem her as well. Now Naomi tells Ruth to wait while Boaz goes and settles that matter the very same day. And friends, that's where we are too. Not only in this story, but in this season. We're waiting. We're waiting not only for the first advent, for Christmas Day to come, but in even more poignant sense, we're waiting for His second advent, for Christ's return, for His consummation to be complete, for this world with all its sickness and sorrow with all its pain and pandemics, with all its wars and rumors of wars, for these things all to be wiped away forever. Now we don't have to wait too long to find out how the story turns out. And as Christians, we know that because God and Christ has scandalized Himself for us, we're now free, even now as we wait, to trust and follow Him who's taken away our sin and shame. Rejoice, Christian, because a Redeemer that's even nearer to Boaz was born and raised, and He was crucified and raised again. And He now lives forever, and by faith in Him, you can live forever too. Our night has become morning time and our morning with a you in there our morning has become joy joy to the world the lord is come let's pray father give us the faith of ruth and the joy of naomi that in trusting and following jesus we may have life and life abundant Let us see the humble manger and the scandalous cross and this gloriously empty tomb, how Jesus became our family redeemer. We pray this all in His name who gives us great joy. Amen.